Hey everybody, I'm Micah Rich. And I'm Olivia Kane. And welcome to the Weekly Typographic. A podcast where we discuss our favorite type and design news from the week. Hello, Olivia. Good day, Micah. That's a funny joke that you'll never hear because we already recorded this once and then I accidentally deleted it. So this is take two of the podcast for this week. And uh, we are joined by drinks. Yeah, we finished it. We accidentally, something happened. It got deleted. I was like, I'll do another podcast, but I need to have a drink if we're going to do it. Uh, and if you don't know, one of Olivia's favorite drinks is scotch, which is yes. one of the reasons that we're such good friends. Yes, yes. And yeah. What good taste. And one of Micah's favorite drinks is a Negroni, which I also think is a sign of good taste. So. Yeah, we're both, we're both classy bitches. <laughs> Yeah, that's exactly the formal, correct term for who we are. Are we going to have to mark this as like 17 plus now, this particular episode, because I oh, said that? Oh, gosh. You know what's funny? <laughs> I exited out of all of my links that I had prepared. So That's okay. I'll get us set up with what the nerd alert is about while you're opening them. Please do. <clears throat> the nerd alert is about the behind the scenes of open source. So it's going to yes. be an off-the-cuff conversation about uh, mostly Olivia drilling me about things because she's really good at that and talking about the stuff you don't see that is involved in open source typography and maybe some ways that you can contribute and that kind of thing. Um, but sort of the, the stuff behind the veneer. Oh, yeah. You say off the cuff, but we already had the conversation. So Mike is a little bit I know, but we're not going to be able to repeat it, so it's going to be off the cuff again. <laughs> this is going to be the running At joke. At least my answers next... won't be the same. <laughs> yeah, it'll be similar. It'll be good. All right. So, guys, it's going to be a little bit of a fun, goofy podcast <laughs> with your classy bitches. <laughs> uh. So much weirder when you say it. Oh, gosh. I'm sorry. I had to. Here, doing it for the laughs. Okay, guys. First link. Again, first link. Raphael Serra reimagines iconic logos through a nostalgic 80s lens. And let me just add that all of these links are winners today. These are all winners because Olivia picked them. I picked one of them. I picked this first link, and it is a winner. So, Just kidding, Steph. Don't mean to take any attention away from Rafael Serra, but here we go. Rafael Serra is a very talented Portuguese lettering artist and type designer, and I've been following Rafael for a while, actually. He does really interesting, bold and minimalistic and very clever takes on logos that we're all familiar with, and brings like a totally different spin on them. Doesn't even try to fit the aesthetic of the brand. So in the showcase in this print magazine article, you see Nike and Vans and Spotify. I particularly like Spotify. I feel like if Spotify did a limited run of like 90s inspired merch, I would buy a t-shirt with this Spotify logo on it. But if you want to see more of the work, you can link to his portfolio, which is featured in the article. And there are just... Tons of series of lettering projects that Rafael has done for brands like Coca-Cola and Oreo and Kodak. A lot of these are just his explorations, so they're not a lot of them aren't actually real client projects, but I think he really establishes an aesthetic very well. 
that if any of these clients want to do an 80s edition of their logo or any clients in general want someone that really mastered the 80s aesthetic, they can now look at Raphael's portfolio and say, this is our guy. So that is my excited, inspired take <laughs> on these images. Okay. So, well, you made a good point that I'm going to make sure that you make when we talked about this before. But first of all, obviously very talented. He's he's good at composition. There's such specific skills that go into logo design around composition and foreground, background, and highlighting certain things. And he's obviously very skilled and or talented at that because all of these look legit is the thing. They just all look like they're from 1981. And I personally don't love the 70s, 80s, or 90s. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that vibe doesn't really get me excited, but I have to admit that he obviously knows what to do with these things because they're great compositions. They work, they're creative, they're all over the place, like many varieties of interesting things. And I have to say, too, I just kind of noticed this in the... Basically, if you go to his website, which is linked in the article, you see a bunch, and then you click on one of those, and that in itself is a whole series. And so uh, there's there's many more than you even realize are there. And so the, the lettering series 21, like XXI, with Kill Bill on the front, mm. there's a bunch of them that are in here that are, like, very stretched out vertical compositions which are so interesting and there's one at the end that's like Billie Eilish and I'm like okay that could be an album cover she could totally use that yeah so there's at least a few in every one of these on his homepage that I'm like oh that's legit I could see that in you so that tells me like he knows what he's doing he's really good at it most of them the 80s vibe I think it's directly what you said he pays no attention to the brand initially mm -hmm. it's not what the band is trying to convey and that is what i don't love about it mm -hmm. but you made a really good point earlier what was that point that you made you and i always talk about if you're trying to break into a specific niche in the design world let's say you want to do restaurant branding you should create fictional projects with restaurant branding so it's kind of like create for the job that you want if you don't have the job that you want currently so you can tell there's a passion for creating these logo marks just for the joy of creating like an 80s nostalgic logo mark, not necessarily trying to pay attention to all the nitty gritty brand strategy that actually exists behind Apple or Nike or all of that. So I said, you know, if any of these brands like really wanted to have someone that had this unique take, the way that like when I have hired illustrators or typographers, we always need to make sure there's something in their existing portfolio that replicates the aesthetic we're going for. So if there was someone that wanted to hire an illustrator or typographer or lettering artist for something of this specific aesthetics, something that harkens back to the 80s or Tron or any of that stuff, he's got it made. This is in the bag. Like he shows he's super capable at replicating that style and really crafted this niche for him and with these very well done word marks. So exactly, even if it's not your particular flavor of ice cream that you prefer, he makes the mint chocolate chip really good. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's such good advice. Better than like, oh, I don't like the aesthetic is the fact that you as someone who has hired people with specific design skills before, you have an idea for what a project should look like. And then you go find people who make stuff that looks like that. 
you're not like hiring your favorite people all of the time. Mm-hmm. You're hiring the people whose stuff you liked that matches what you're already trying to go for. And that's yeah. such a useful industry insight. I didn't think of this when we first recorded, but there's been a TikTok that's been on my mind lately. Give me your TikTok tea. Which is some guy giving just the life advice of if you're struggling with perfectionism or putting too much pressure on yourself to do things a certain way, his advice was like, do it as a joke and just have fun with it and pretend that there are no consequences and it doesn't matter. And I obviously can't speak for what this designer was thinking when he made these things, but it seems like that of kind of like, I just feel like doing this. I just want to do it. And I don't care if there's a place for it or not. It's cool. And I want to get better at it. And he put him out. And now you, as somebody in a good position to be talking about this kind of stuff are saying you would look at this and think of him. If you had some eighties themed party that you needed to have special logos designed for, that's good advice. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's just good advice in whatever portfolios you're looking at. Might not be your cup of tea, but there's definitely a market for it. And I love seeing people enjoying themselves on their own personal creative journeys. I feel like that is more the exception to the rule with designers as, as I get farther and farther into my career. And, and like you get this good at doing at it by doing it as much as he is doing it. Exactly. It's impossible to just say, I'm a lettering artist that wants to do 80s-themed logos, and people are just going to flock to you without actually doing the proof of concept. All right, fine. Good find, Olivia. Thanks. Our next article (laughs) is batting 102. It is from Evil Martians. It is titled, Variable Fonts in Real Life, How to Use and Love Them. So in this day and age, there are probably a million articles about variable fonts and we're so sick of being like, yes, we know what they are. We know the axes are great. We know they're small in file size. I think something you and I, Micah, that have, we've always kind of been searching for reasons to actually use these. Utility and functional reasons to be like, this is better than having a font that is in a singular weight. So I think there's some good points in this article. I love the diagrams that they outline in some of the use cases for why they think variable fonts is an excellent substitute for existing fonts. One of them, they show the difference between black text on a white background versus white text on a black background. And a lot of typographers know at this point that when you use the same weight, but in those two scenarios, the white text on a black background looks heavier because of the optical illusion that it's creating with the text being the illuminated part of that design. So having the precision to just go a few notches of a weight down without having to jump from one weight to another, that's something that variable fonts can allow. It's about this precision. And they talk about this other use case. Let's say you had a typeface that was trying to match the weight of an icon set. And the icon set was maybe like uh, outlined or wasn't filled in. So there was a certain line weight to the icons. You could precisely adjust the weight of the text to match that of the icons. Micah, I remember you mentioning that that's like a very specific use case and like wouldn't the icons be designed to match the text? But I think there's a lot of cases where, who knows, there might be illustrations, line illustrations that are already designed. Or maybe you don't have the budget to design an icon set, so you have to download one that's off the internet in stock. And then you have to start making adjustments in that way. I just think it was an interesting use case. And then it's a very robust article. And at the end, they also include the disadvantages of variable fonts, which I thought was pretty interesting because, you know, they're trying to promote them. But in reality, there's some real 
disadvantages, which I know, Micah, you were excited to chat about. Uh, take one of this recording. Well, I think we were both excited because it wasn't just like a variable fonts are so great, you should use them. It was like, here's some really awesome pros and a bunch of them. And then here's some realistic cons, which is only a few. And one of those, I guess, was that they specifically highlighted like a lot of word processors and video editors do not have support yet. And so that's like that that difficulty of being on the cutting edge, even though variable fonts aren't super cutting edge anymore, just not every app is updated to be able to support it yet. And so, I mean, video editing is a prime example of like video editing is as much design as Photoshop or making a poster or something like there's so many motion graphics that go into any given video at this point that If there isn't support for variable fonts, they still work. They're still fonts. You just don't have those variation axes to play with. So that's a legitimate shortcoming that is only going to be updated when the things that are out of your control change. Yeah, exactly. Something I thought of that was interesting in this article made me think about the nerd alert we did a few weeks back about point sizes, how like once upon a time... There were names for different point sizes. So 12 point was called Pika, 16 point was called Primer, or something like that, so on and so forth. Instead of using actual metrics like 12, 13, 14 point, you said names. It really reminded me of how the weight system is used now. Instead of metrics, we say Helvetica Black, Helvetica Bold, Helvetica Light, Helvetica like Ultralight. That moving to variable fonts will mean that you're no longer relying on the names. You are actually getting really, really precise with the metrics. So it'd be, you know, Helvetica maybe 750 weight and maybe 200 italic slant. And I think about when I'm even writing brand guidelines, usually it's like, you want this type family, Helvetica, black, 40 tracking, so on and so forth, that it's going to be even more precise and metric-based, like Helvetica, 700 weight, 40 tracking, 16 point instead of having these vernacular conventions. I'm curious how that's going to start affecting all of us designers down the line when, again, variable fonts are more widely used. That is a really good point. And it's it's funny because the numbers were always made up in the first place anyway. Mm-hmm. And underneath those names, regular is 400 anyway. Mm-hmm. And if you've ever made a font, like you know that you have to take a number and give it a name anyway. And I think it was also referencing the fact that even when you define a really specific thing, like like what you were talking about in the Nerd Alert, uh, point sizes were not the same at every foundry. There was slight variation, and that's true today, too, with devices, where even if you say 16 pixels on a retina screen, it's going to be yeah. slightly different than on a non-retina screen. And so, like... Any absolutism that we have with typography has always been fake anyway. And so if at least we start transitioning to using relative numbers for everything anyway, then at least it's Mm -hmm. a little bit more true because that number with that font particularly is always going to be able to replicate what it is. Yeah. That's an interesting point. Yeah. And I always am surprised, I guess, when I hear new information about why we should be using variable fonts. And I know there's so many people in the type design industry that are pushing for it. But like you said, until like word processors, video editing software really support this, we can only move as far as the things that are supporting us with variable fonts. What's interesting is like it could, if at the moment 
it's built where, I mean, I don't mean to belittle any software development, but if some word processor is already letting you select a different font weight for Helvetica Black, the information is built in and they could just switch that where you're still selecting Helvetica Black and it just turns it to 800, you know? Yeah. I wonder if they're not doing it because the majority of people that use fonts realistically are not designers. It's literally people using Mm -hmm. computers. And the idea of having to teach people about variable fonts might be intimidating to think about teaching non-designers about it. I think that's a BS reason, but it honestly (laughs) might be that the interface is so simplified, they might be hesitant to add something that could complicate it and make it quote-unquote less user-friendly. I don't think that's total BS. If you handed, like, I don't know, my aunt, sorry, Auntie Jeannie, but if you handed my aunt the ability to choose any number between 100 and 800 for how bold her text should be when she's making an advertisement for her block sale, she's going to be like picking random weird numbers that are going to look... I mean, it's hard enough for non-designers to pick type well that like if you can choose anything, I don't know. Not saying they shouldn't do it. I'm just saying I can see why they would look at that and be like, that's not top priority. We don't need to fix that. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Well, very curious. The day it does come supported on word processors, we have to do a podcast and talk about how they explain (laughs) it to the lay people because that'll be interesting. Indeed. And like I said, lots of inspiring articles this week. The next one is from Type Room. It is titled, Lara Captain on the Beauty and the Many Challenges of Arabic Type Design. I was just really excited about this article. It was originally published to market for an event called Investigatory Explorations and Experimentations in Arabic Type, which was a talk that Lara gave in April. But regardless, I wasn't able to make it. This interview is so robust. You get a really good preview into her work and her mission to make Arabic type more broadly taught about and get more people exposed to it to help the industry really grow. You and I have definitely been exposed to a lot more Arabic type over the past year, which I find really exciting. We were able to interview Nadine Shaheen last year after uh, she became CEO of I Love Typography. There is so much that we have learned even at Type Weekend about the script in general and also how it's really gotten a backseat for several years because it was seen as secondary to Latin script. And that really did a disservice to Arabic type for a long time. But finally, we're expanding the industry. We're getting more people involved. Education is becoming more accessible. And with that, we're seeing this kind of starting to blossom Arabic type designers coming um, out of the woodworks and showing us some really great fonts from that. So I can't summarize this whole article, you know, in this podcast here. There's so much good meaty information in here. I will say she does give an interesting perspective talking about when Arabic type digitally first came to the mainstream, it was because a lot of brands realized that they had a growing global market and needed to create support for nations that used Arabic script. But because of that, Arabic script typography in the digital world was starting to get developed in the same process that Latin script became developed. And in that way, Arabic script was really getting disserviced by that thinking. For example, typefaces were giving an X height to some Arabic script where an X doesn't even exist in Arabic script itself. And the way that the forms were being designed was in a modular way, like Latin is designed, which works for Latin script. 
but is not the way that the organic Arabic script has been functioning for so, so long before the advent of digital typefaces. So she gives a great background there. And she also introduced me to Arabic Type Design Beirut, which is a program. It seems like they've had a few different formats, one that's similar to Type at Kubrick Condensed. I think they're doing a two-week intensive program now. But regardless, any program that is an intensive workshop for people to really immerse themselves in Arabic type design is something that should definitely be in the spotlight at the moment. I have never heard of it before. I'm super excited to learn more about it and learn more about Lara's mission as she's trying to educate more people about Arabic script, whether they are from Arabic nations or not. I think that's a pretty exciting venture forward. One of the things that you mentioned initially too was that Lara has a background both in Lebanon and the Netherlands and made a point in this interview to describe that she was very privileged that her family in Lebanon was willing in a culture that is often restrictive to women to give her the same opportunities as a man and Mm -hmm. that her experience in the Netherlands was that that's obviously not true everywhere that there's lots of places where there are experiences for different ethnicities and genders and and all manner of diversity So one of the things that I respect and appreciate a lot about this Arabic type design that they are doing is the fact that it's fairly affordable compared to serious type design programs like Cooper or whatever else, Mm -hmm. where at the moment, at least on their website, it says if you get accepted, it's $400, which is, I think, pretty affordable to a lot of people considering this is type design that we're talking about in a different language. Mm-hmm. And uh, I respect that a lot. So we had said, like, we got to try to get her on the podcast, maybe in an interview, yeah, even at workshop. I don't know. That would be very cool. Definitely. Super excited to be introduced to her work and her ethos around making the type world more inclusive because she's very hopeful and optimistic, but is very frank about circumstances that have been the barrier for a long time and really need to be changed if we're going to work towards this more inclusive industry. Please check that out if you're going to check out anything from this week. Our final link, just the most heartwarming story. (laughs) So this is an award-winning short documentary. It's around 10 minutes from Better Letters, which was a blog I don't think I knew about before this. But they've been making a series of short films about industry veterans in the lettering and letter form world. This video we're going to talk about now is with Barbara Enright, who is an Australian lettering artist. Funny that they use a different vernacular in Australia. She went to school for ticket writing, and ticket writing is another name for lettering and calligraphy in Australia. So she is definitely more seasoned in the industry, but when she started, there was definitely a big market for sign painters. So she started her career doing sign painting for department stores, signage for retail shops, for small businesses, all over before the advent of desktop publishing and vinyl letters. And she talks about her journey through her career as she watched typography and fonts take over what her trade was and talk about as soon as people got a hold of a computer, businesses were not knocking on their door anymore. And she was able to still remain in business for all these decades and really found the people that cared about handwritten signs. There's such great B-roll of her just 
creating signs and doing beautiful letter forms. It's so mesmerizing. It's definitely like a beautifully done short film as well. And in the end, she ends with this beautiful note talking about how amazed she's been that so many people still actually want to learn the craft of sign painting and how she feels like it's her mission now to keep the craft alive even decades in the future. So she seems like just the sweetest woman. And I it was 10 minutes just well spent. That's all I have to say. You mentioned too, I think that she's like dedicated some time to teaching other people how to do this. Yes. Which is pretty awesome. I respect yeah. that too. I'm always curious how people with this set of skills after like a lifetime of that being the standard make it once that's not the standard anymore. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, mesmerizing is such a good word. Like you watch the fluidity of a wrist movement and suddenly this beautiful letter appears and you've nothing but respect for how much talent that takes. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And just like the inspiring nature of she watched an industry slowly disappear, but like was still holding on to it and really believed in what she was doing. I think that in itself, like deep down feels very inspiring to hear about. Word. All right, Micah. We're at the nerd alert. Time for the nerd alert. Yes. Get ready to be grilled by my questions, which you've already kind of prepared for. But nevertheless, they're interesting questions. I'm always excited to hear about your experience in the open source world. Obviously, I'm a part of the league. I have way less experience in the technical aspects that make it open source using Git, like using the community's resources, and just the many years of experience you've had running the league It's very inspiring for me. And I also think it's like a good educational opportunity for us all to learn about what it's been like for the past decade and the challenges of it, the rewards of it, the realities of it. I want to cover it all so people can see a more nuanced view. We already did an episode about what open source is to begin with, but I think I want to hear a little bit more about your experience through it and ultimately like how people can contribute back to the league in the end if they feel the will to do so. So the starting question is that you kind of set a precedent for open source in typography, and I wanted to know about why open source. Why did you feel compelled to do this uh, with with fonts. We are the first open source type boundary. Like that's huge. Right. Okay. So I have told this tale at at least one party. Tale um, as old as time. <laughs> True as uh, it can be. Okay, I keep on going. Oh wow, you know the whole song. Okay. I know those two um, lines. Okay. <laughs> I feel like I have this version of the story that is true that is kind of how it started, which is that I was in college and I had been teaching myself programming and code and didn't have anybody to learn from. And so the only places that I could learn were like tutorials online and whatnot. And ultimately, if it weren't for open source code, I wouldn't have been able to build anything. So much of programming is taking pieces that people have open source and seeing how they did them or literally integrating a piece that someone else wrote into a bigger thing that you are building. And I didn't see any difference between code and design, that those two things are basically the same activities with different skill sets. And so I remember looking on type drawers which, to be honest, I don't know if it still exists, 
but was like a forum for professional type designers for a very long time. It was like the forum for a long time. And somebody had posted that they were like a student and they were interested to know if there were any such thing as like open source fonts so that they could like pick it apart and see how it worked and understand it and maybe build on top of it. And the response was just pages and pages of professional type designers being like, how dare you? This is my livelihood and you're talking about giving it away for free. Get out of here. There's no place for that kind of talk. This is professional, you know? And that just totally baffled me. Like, what the heck? How do you not see the value in sharing and open sourcing some of the stuff that you're working on? Like, how do you see that as the enemy? And so I remember indignantly being like, well, I want to make a foundry then that is all about that because it was so impactful for me to learn from open source in the programming community that it just made sense to do it in design and why not typography Uh, because typography is such a fundamental piece of design and so hard and like unapproachable that that seems a perfect opportunity to like see how other people are building stuff. For sure. I feel like we take open source for granted. You were really at the initiation of this for the type world where, you know, today we have Google fonts. So we see tons of people open sourcing fonts, but that wasn't always the status quo. And typography for the longest time has been built upon an industry that is about retail typefaces, that is about custom typefaces for clients, where open source wasn't really part of the picture for the history of typography before that. So I kind of want to hear about As creatives, you know, we really value our work. Sometimes we become protective over it because, you know, we put in the time and the creative effort into it. Like, how do you let go of those instincts that we have? And what mindsets do you have to let go of in the open source community to really kind of allow the open sourceness of it all to thrive? And at what points do you see people maybe taking advantage of it being open source and what problems arise because there is no monetary value attached to it. Okay. (laughs) That is a lot. It's interesting that you talk about it as like, what do you have to let go of to open source something? And I think actually it's kind of the opposite. Mm. I don't think I've quite put it this way before, but there's like a certain pride that you get out of putting something out there that everybody can use and potentially build off of or make amazing things. Like I walk down the street and I see posters and business. Like I literally just messaged somebody on, or somebody messaged me on Instagram the other day that I followed because he's like a chiropractor who's like getting big on TikTok. Mm -hmm. And he was like, Oh, how'd you find me? It was a TikTok, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, Oh, by the way, a lot of your marketing uses Railway, which is a font that we initially published. Wow. And he was like, oh my gosh, that's crazy. And there's such pride that comes out of seeing stuff that you made that is used. Yeah. And while that's true in somebody bought your font and used it, that's still true. But there's an extra piece there that I think a lot of people don't appreciate about the fact that making something that people can use freely is exposure to 
Mm-hmm. And it's different than somebody coming along and being like, oh, you're a great type designer. I'll pay you by like giving you a name credit and you'll get exposure. Yeah. That's totally different because it's you choosing to say, here's the thing that I made. I want to put it out in the world. And one of the benefits of that is that people will use it and hopefully credit you. Mm-hmm. So I think what a lot of people, you know, you kind of described as like, what do you have to let go of? And I think a lot of people think of it like that. It's like you have to let go of the fact that somebody's going to pay you to use your typeface, I guess. But there's a lot of interesting stuff that comes with open sourcing and letting people use the stuff that you've made. The pride that we're talking about of like seeing your stuff in use, but also it's like this cool opportunity to let other people not only build on top of it, but offer to build it with you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is rare. It's hard because type design is still a pretty niche industry. And while I think a lot of people, like it's been expanding to the corners of the globe that didn't always have access to learning about how to make fonts, it's still pretty niche. So it's not like when you put out a font that only has a certain character set, you know, in the next month, you'll immediately see somebody being like, oh, I made a whole other character set for you. Sometimes that happens, and that feels pretty awesome when it happens. And there's a certain joint ownership that comes from the fact that other people like it enough to try to improve it. Yeah, I feel like by removing the transactional aspect of what has so much been ingrained in typography, it can be very freeing, like you said. I feel like it sounds like that it has been, and it sounds like a community can start rallying around a bigger purpose for why this font exists and to get it in people's hands, whether that's a big corporation, which sometimes happens, but realistically in students' hands too, which students didn't have many opportunities to have high quality fonts for projects for a long time. So that is a very interesting perspective that is not quite obvious to people when they look at like, oh, why would you open source it? Like, why would you make this free? You can make money off of it. That's another thing that I definitely want to touch on is the free part, because by making it free and making it open source where it's kind of more than free, it's not just that people can build on top of it and contribute back to it, but it's also that there's no limitations on how you can use it. And so people use it all over the place Mm -hmm. and often uh, share who made it. And that in itself can be, I I often suggest this to people who come to us and say, hey, I'd I'd like to contribute a font. I try to point out to them, while they're already open to the idea of sharing the font and the cool thing that they made, it's a really good way to showcase your skills and like get your name out there. Mm -hmm. If you put it in the right place, we at the league really try to make a point to as many places as we can, not just on the website, but whenever we talk about it or whatever, we give that attribution to the actual people who contributed to it. Mm -hmm. There's so many potential financial opportunities that can come from that. People have hired us to expand a font that is free because they want to use it for some corporate branding or something and they need more characters and they have the budget to buy a font. So they might as well like, put it into something that they can use anywhere that helps the original people that made it. 
And so oftentimes we get to like go back to, well, not all, I mean, it's happened a handful of times, but we go back to the original people who made this free font and shared it with people and say, hey, would you like to make a bunch of money on working on the free thing? Mm-hmm. And often people get a bigger name from just doing it or a name as a type designer where then they can go on and like sell their own retail fonts because people know who they are because they made the font that they love or whatever. For sure. That is definitely a good, another great descriptors of how open source has unexpected surprise and delight kind of within the nature of the system. There's not many rules with open source, but there are some, like you can't republish it and then make people pay for the font. How would you say people have taken advantage of the open sourceness of it all or some of the challenges that have kind of come about from having run the open source foundry for almost a decade now? I'm sure you've seen some snafus in that sort of arena. Okay, that's a good question. Yeah. One is... You have a certain vision when you're making a font. A lot of heart goes into making a font and how it should look and how it should act. And if you don't maintain some ownership over that original, it can get weird. For example, there's like a clause in the open font license that is the reserved font name, mm-hmm. which then makes it so that legally somebody can't publish a variation of your font with the same name without your consent. Mm -hmm. And that sometimes gets hairy, like, you know, in a couple instances, someone has changed what one of our fonts looks like and published it under the same name, and it can get kind of confusing of which version is the real version. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you kind of maintain that reserved font name, it means that somebody makes a variation. They have to name it something different, so they won't get confused. Yeah. Well, at the same time, you maintain the ability to... You know, if they kind of offer to give their changes back to the original version, you have the control to allow those changes in and say, oh, I'm going to change the original version. Here's version two instead. Mm -hmm. So while there are some parties out there that don't like the reserved font name piece of that equation, I think it's pretty valuable maintaining control over the concept of the thing that you published. Yeah. And so that's the thing that I've seen gotten hairy, even with some of our own fonts, unfortunately. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense because our fonts have been around for for the first open source foundry. Been around for a long time. I'm sure you've seen a lot. So I think there are so many challenges that come with an open source project because, yeah, you can say, oh, it's free, butterflies, rainbows, etc. But (laughs) honestly, people expect you to maintain the project and make sure there's updates, make sure there's bugs that are fixed. There are also expectations that come with open source. And so many times we hear from listeners of the podcast or fans of the league, I love what you guys do, what you guys are committed to. And that's so wonderful, but also it takes like a community. Like open source doesn't just happen with one person. I think it thrives when we have contributors. So From your perspective, I have two last questions. Like one would be, how can people in general contribute back to the open source type world? And then also, in what ways can the league in a dream scenario have help from someone? And what would that role be? Because I think any open source project can use help. And I certainly think ours is not excluded from that. So first question, how how people helped us in general in different ways? That is a really good question. I'm realizing now the first time that we talked about this, there was kind of a question about technical versus non-technical, like coding versus Mm non-coding. 
on either extreme, there's ways that, that are really cool that people can contribute. I'll talk about the technical stuff first, which I think is a little bit more rare. If you're a programmer and you're really into typography, one of the most amazing examples is this guy named Caleb McClellan. He just emailed us out of the blue one day and he was like, I work in publishing. I work with fonts all the time and I love the league fonts. Um, but like some of the repositories and downloads are like inconsistent. And I'd love to make a system that helps you guys be more consistent about it. And he ended up developing this entire font ship project, which to his credit, he insisted on being open source. I respect that. So if you go to our league GitHub, you can find font ship and use it. And it's like this whole, frankly, more complicated than I can understand as a programmer. Um, it's just using languages that are very cool that I'm not up to date on. But it's like this whole library that as you push changes to your font, it will like build all of the files that are necessary for a normal person to use and download and install and automatically publish those. And it's made the process of updating league fonts so seamless because we just push changes, everything's updated, it's updated on the website, it's amazing. As a coder, that's somebody who's not a type designer and he didn't necessarily even want to have those skills, but he found tooling that could contribute to the font making process that was useful for type designers. And that's a really cool technical instance. And it reminds me of something we talked about before, where at the beginning of the league, I remember meeting with Google and saying like, wouldn't it be so awesome if there was like some kind of QA tool that had like a checklist of all of the stuff that we wish a font could handle to make sure that it's good quality. And then they kind of ran with that and made like font bakery, which is this detailed, complicated tool that most professional type designers at this point use to make sure that a font is up to snuff. That kind of tooling that we invented early on, like there's so many opportunities if you're a coder to build cool stuff like that that could contribute to the process of type design. And then on the other end of the spectrum, if you're not a coder at all and you have no coding interest or whatever, I've seen some really amazing projects where people were like, here's a bunch of open source fonts that I have used in cool combinations. Here's like examples of a poster using these fonts or websites with these font combinations. Like I would pair this with that. And that is such a cool, I think you had said previously, like validating way to encourage the use of open source fonts. Because, I mean, back in the day, in the original inclination of all of this, the prevailing misconception was that if it's free, it's crap. Yep. And we were like, that's bullshit. That's not true. Let's prove you wrong. And those kind of projects where you see like beautifully typeset stuff or like some amazing example where you're referencing the open source fonts that were used and like especially linking back to them so that more people can use those fonts. That's the kind of thing that is such a wonderful example of these are professional fonts. These are legit. These are as good as any font that you would pay for. They just happen to be open source because of the reasons that the person wanted to open source them. Yep. And that's a super cool non-coding way to contribute. Amazing. And then the middle of the road is finding one of these open source fonts. And, you know, maybe you like 
know enough about type design or just a little bit to work on some of the characters that don't exist or if you want to like stretch it a little bit like make an extra weight or an extra style or a couple of people have turned our fonts from the old-fashioned many weights to variable fonts mm-hmm. and contributed those back and it might take a little bit of learning of how git works or something to be able to actually contribute those changes back but I feel like that's a good kind of middle of the road where like those kinds of things are not crazy to learn if you're not totally intimidated by coding or, you know, if you have some interest in coding, you can learn just the basics of that to be able to contribute back. And that's such a good middle way to contribute. Absolutely. So what could we use help with at the league? Like we are certainly, (laughs) you know, I feel like we obviously do our best, but there's a lot we got going on in general. And again, open source thrives with communities. So like if you were think of any way people, one person or many people could help out, I would love to hear it. And if anyone fits this role or knows someone that fits this role, please send them (laughs) our way. Yeah, this is one of the things we've talked about a bunch is... I'm the technical person on the team. Like you guys, you and Steph are amazing at content planning and making sure that all of these like interviews happen and whatnot. And I'm trying to run so many other things behind the scenes that I often get bogged down by, uh, you know, people will like contribute issues and say like, hey, I need it in this language or I wish that it did X, Y, Z. And they're... Very valid request, but not something that I usually have the ability to actually take the time to do. And so I've I've often dreamed of having somebody on the team who loved type design or wanted to like get good at type design, not necessarily even somebody who is super well known in it or anything like that, but knew enough type design to be able to feel good about it and offer some opinions about whether something's good or not and like was willing enough to learn the GitHub stuff so that somebody could be in charge of the open source arm of the league, where there's so many other things that we are doing that often it's tough for me to just maintain all of the requests and potential changes and updates and and whatnot for all of the fonts that we have. And it would be, I, I have often dreamed of finding somebody that was interested enough in both the technical side and the type side to be able to be like, you know what, I'm going to run the open source part and help everybody expand these fonts and respond to requests and stuff. And I've, I've often dreamed of that. So if that is something that you're interested in, we've been looking for you for years. So come say hi. Absolutely. Slide in our DMs, email us at founders at leakmovabletype.com. That is absolutely something we could use help with. We don't have the backing of millions of dollars like some other tech companies do that also have open source foundries. So realistically, we would love to get to know you and be part of the community. And I think you could really be part of something that is much bigger than yourself. And I believe in the work we do at the League, and I know a lot of other people do too. So that's my final spiel on that. But I think that was that was a nice hearty episode, my friend. Yeah, thank you for the excellent leading questions. Ugh, of course, I always love grilling you and appreciate you being <laughs> vulnerable and telling us the actual challenges and the actual success stories because it's easy to say, oh, you know, it's a perfect whatever X, Y, and Z. And It's not always, and that's okay. And I think we all learn from that. And it's important people actually know what it's like. And you've been freaking at it for so long, (laughs) my friend. It's impressive. 
All right, everybody. You're awesome. See you on the internet. Do-do-do-do. Do-do-do-do. Do-do-do-do.